is Sigourney Weaver. A new episode of Magic by Design is commencing now in your podcast feed. JK, it's actually Ken. Wow, we got the Sigourney Weaver? We did. Did, oh. did I fool you? Yeah, I thought she was here. We're hoping not to forget our review of Pixar's 17th animated feature, Finding Dory, first released in 2016. But before we head back to the reef, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Ken, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host slash brother Garrett. Gar, how are you? If I forget character names, if I forget plot points, any of that, it's just I'm reflecting the art in front of me. Yes, I suffer from short-term memory loss. I also have long-term memory loss. I just don't have a brain. You're a boy of very little brain. <laughs> yeah, me and Pooh together. Dorian who would love each other. They would. I do remember seeing this in the cinema, Garen, and that's the only time I've seen it before the podcast. I think I saw it in the cinema. Did we see this together? We did. I remember we saw it together. Yeah, I don't remember seeing it. I don't even remember my opinion of it when I saw it. Let me check my while you continue. I'm going to see that I tweet about it. I do remember being resistant to it only because I was cynical about Pixar sequels at the time. Obviously, we know the Toy Story sequels are iconic, but then we have the likes of Monsters, Inc. and... Cars sequels muddying up the waters. Okay, I did a podcast a day episode on Finding Dory. Okay, good. So I'd have to listen to it to find out what I thought. But my only other tweet about Finding Dory is about Dory Funk. Ah, yes. Not the Dory we're talking about. No. This very... is not the Dory you're looking for. <laughs> it's a very different Dory. So who knows? You go listen to that episode of Podcast a Day. It's episode 106 if you would like to find out what I thought of Finding Dory. That's back when Gar attempted to do one podcast a day for an entire year. So when I go see a movie, I just review it. And I did have definitive Pixar rankings on that. I wonder will they match up? I assume like the Disney episode, we'll do a ranking at the end. I assume we will, yeah. Yes. Or spoilers. Yes, spoilers. But I'll see, is my ranking the same now as it was then, Ken? It'll be fun to, to compare the two. Yes, we should. You should even listen to that list before you do the new one. Mm. Or he maybe you put- shouldn't. To not bias it. Oh, of course, yes. I, I will. I will stay pure. He just put the dog out, didn't he? He did. Which means countdown to Barculus. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. See how far we get. Andrew Stanton returns to direct with most of the main cast returning as well. Hayden Rowlands replaced Alexander Gould as Nemo, although Gould does return to provide some added voices in the film, which is a nice touch. Yeah, it is nice. It's like when they brought back the voice of Andy to do Andy. It's just like, yeah, it's nice. And obviously they couldn't have the voice of Nemo do Nemo because Nemo was a child. And this film is 2016 and Finding Nemo is 2004? Three. Three, so So, 13 years later. So I don't imagine that fellow still sounds like a child. Yes, Gould would have been around 19 at the stage, if not older, approaching adulthood. That was a seamless re-entry, which I'm going to ruin by pointing out how seamless you got back into the conflict. For context, Ken's dog was just put out into the garden and started barking. And Ken probably wanted to seamlessly go back into the podcast, but I want to talk about his dog, honestly, a little more. Kara, why would you do this to me? Because Honey's been mentioned on the show before. She's officially canon. Honey currently has a vendetta, not just against a cat in our back garden, but against the very idea of the cat. Yeah, because for quite a while, there was a cat on the wall, a small black cat, Mm -hmm. and she would bark incessantly at it every time she was put out to do her business in the evening. And now she just barks whether there's a cat there or not. It is literally the concept of the cat drives her into a fury and she barks madly at it. And maybe it's still like within her sniff range. She can smell it or something because I think the cat belongs to the back neighbor maybe. Because I do, at, at in the depths of night here, very loud cat noises, which is either cats fighting or cats um, having sex. Because it's a very, you pointed out, cats have barbed penises. 
Yes, they I'm do. not sure why you knew that, but you did. <laughs> that's why they cause a lot of racket. Yeah, that's why they, they make a lot of noise while they are procreating. But Honey is furious at this cat, and she was put out into the garden to do her business and started barking. So we had to pause the recording for like five minutes while she barked herself out. She did pee, though, so at least she's not going to be on the carpet this time. Because like, legitimately, she is so furious at this cat that most of the time when she's put it out into the garden, which is usually, you know, you know do your little peas and your poos there, Honey, she's too mad at the cat to actually do it a lot of the time. Yeah. And again, not even the cat. The idea of the cat. Cat's not even there. In fairness, there are multiple cats, so sometimes there's cats on the other side of the garden as well. Yeah, and there was one day where the cat was on the far wall. She chased the cat. The cat went under the shed roof and onto the, the near wall. And Honey was like literally following the cat around the garden barking. And it's not even like barking. She whips herself up into such a fury that it's like one continuous bark. Yeah, it's like, it's hard to describe, but it's like... It's like she's like howling or, yeah, it's or like, wailing. It's, it's just a breathless bark where it's just like... And she does not stop barking. So it is one bark. It's a super bark. An ultra bark, if you will. Anyway, thanks for ruining my seamless re-entry car. Yeah, Dory or Nemo not young anymore. New Nemo. Stanton was initially against the idea of the sequel, but succumbs to pressure from Disney. <laughs> that happened a lot. <laughs> Basically, they were intent on making the film. Stanton wanted to be involved so as not to lose the heart of one of his babies. Disney wanted the film in a year, but Stanton pushed back on them. He said he was on board, but asked Disney to ease their timeline so that they could make something they wanted to make, rather than just churning out a sequel. That's a, an interesting contrast to Pete Docter. They were like, they made Monsters, Inc. 2, or from Monsters University, it's a prequel. But he wasn't involved in directing, as opposed to Andrew Stanton, who's like, all right, if you're going to do it, let me do it. And Pete Docter, apparently, is just like, if you're going to do it, I don't really care. I made my movie. I'm going to make Inside Out. Prior to Finding Dory, Disney had planned to make an emo sequel without Pixar's involvement. How many times have they done this? This is at least the third movie that they're like, we're going to make a sequel. Pixar don't want to do it. We're going to do it ourselves. And then eventually, Pixar do it. Is it like Disney's power play? It's just like... We want to make a Finding Nemo sequel. Pixar are like, no, we don't. All right, then. We're going to give this to someone else. And Pixar are like, <laughs> we don't want them making our movies. The plan was to produce the film through the now infamous Circle 7 animation. Those poor guys. All these animation studios who are potentially be given animated movies just being screwed over, over and over. Like, they're a little pawn in Disney's game with Pixar to manipulate them. Well, I think it's a Disney studio, but it does hurt the people involved. You have to constantly be dangling these cool projects in front of them and then ripping them cruelly and emotionlessly away to give to the good studio. But to your point, Gar, does it even exist? Was it just a, a bargaining chip? <laughs> it would be very funny if, yeah, if it's just, it was gaslighting Pixar. It's like, we're giving it to Circle 7. That's a real thing. They, like, registered a company and everything just to fool them. They put it at, like, a plaque on a wall being like, Circus 7, Circus, whatever. <laughs> it might as well be a circus. So this is where they do their animating. And then Pixar walk in and it's like, this is a bathroom. Gar, we had a question the last time we mentioned Circle 7 around if they had produced a film. I can now confirm the answer is no. Yeah, I'm not on the Wikipedia page now. Founded March 16, 2005. Defunct May 26, 2006. And all they ever did was work on draft versions of Toy Story 3, Finding Nemo 2, and Lost in Scaradice, which I assume is also a Monsters, Inc. film. Yes, it is. Or Scaradice, I guess it should be pronounced rather than Scar. Lost in Scaradice is a dream of Scars where he took over the Pride Lands. Yes, it's the sequel or the timeline if he won the fight with Simba at the end. Yeah, there you go. Probably a better movie than the one they were making. Although it never went into production, a script for Circle 7's version did make its way to the internet. Initial ideas for the scrapped film included the introduction of Nemo's long-lost 
twin brother Remy and its plot outlines Marlin being caught leading to them needing to save him so it's like a flip of the first film yeah but like how would Nemo have a long lost twin well, maybe- we saw the movie Barracuda ate them Maybe he missed another egg. One, one got caught in his teeth but didn't get broken and then he accidentally spat it out. I guess so. Maybe the Barracuda took one to raise it as his own. That's the way he operates. We'll never know now, Gar. We will never know. Finding Dory premiered in theatres in June 2016, receiving positive reviews from critics who praised the movie's animation, emotional weight, voice acting and humour. Finding Dory earned a staggering box office catch of $1.029 billion so worldwide. Much so much money. From a budget of 175 to $200 million. It's the third highest grossing film of 2016, the 22nd highest grossing film of all time, and the fourth highest grossing animated film of all time during its theatrical run. That's so much money. Would you have thought Finding Nemo had that much like cultural cash? I guess it probably does when you think about it. The first one was a phenomenon. I think it was, as we said at the time, their first big, big hit in terms of financials Mm. and merchandising and just cultural cachet. So I I do believe it. And when you think about it, like this is to kids that grew up in the early 2000s as Toy Story was to us. You know, like if you were five, six, seven when you saw Finding Nemo, you're then in your early te- early teens, early 20s by the time you see Finding Dory, which is prime, like pandering to your kid nostalgia. Yeah. So maybe this was driven by the kids who saw it, who are now parents, mm. perhaps. Now it's time for takes, Ken. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I remember being very resistant to it, as I said, being a sequel and, you know, Pixar's run of sequels has not been great to date. And I I wanted to dislike it. Now that I'm thinking about it, I do think we were a bit higher on it than we thought we would be when we exited the cinema. Yeah, because again, I cannot even remember. There's a cultural artifact, in my opinion, of this on podcast today. So I could have listened to it, but I haven't. But like... I don't know, it still falls in the category of Monsters University and the Cara sequels in that I do think it's still unnecessary. But as a standalone piece of filmmaking, it's pretty good. It's broadly very enjoyable. It's very, it goes down very, very easy. So I, I can't hold anything against it. It's a, it's a nice little watch. It's a nice little tidy 90 minute animated film that it does regurgitate some of the things from the first movie. Like Marlon dealing with letting go is a thing that we dealt with that in the first movie. And now he's doing it again with Dory and his idea of trusting Dory. These are, th- these are themes and ideas that we did deal with in the first one that they're digging back up to relitigate here. And that, uh, you know that's kind of the lazy thing you do with a sequel it's like what if we did the same thing again except reverse it so now we're finding dory metaphorically yeah so there is parts of that but like just as a nice little story about dory finding her family i think it works and it's as it just goes down very easy it's funny that you say that that's a really good statement it does go down easy because it's just shy of an hour and a half Mm mm-hmm comes in about an hour 27 i think i noticed and it's just a nice breezy watch and you know if you like the first one you're gonna like this one and as you said it's not essential and it's not in any way comparable or even better than the first one but you do enjoy spending time with these characters again yeah it's not groundbreaking unless you're one of the people who watched it as a like a pillar of your childhood it's not going to be like one of the most important or memorable animated films you'll ever watch it's not essential in really any regard but it's a really enjoyable little movie so i think we need to like we have categories ken is this 
B-tier Pixar, or do we need to create a subheading of B-tier sequel Pixar, of which this would fall into? I think it may warrant its own category here. Yeah, so we have A-tier and B-tier Pixar, which we, we've long discussed, and then the tier in which Cars 2 exists, which is like, I don't know, F-tier Pixar. But then we have to move into the subcategory of sequels, in which you have A-tier sequels, which is all three of the Toy Story sequels, and then B-tier sequels, which is Finding Tori, and then the rest of the sequels, which is Monsters University, which is higher than Cars 2, and we'll see about Cars 3, which is next? It is next, Car. You're yeah. correct. So, we'll see. But yeah, it's it's just a good movie. Which might sound like a slight. It's not. It's a good movie. Unexpectedly good. In terms of the animation, Car, as much as they nailed the ocean in the original movie 13 years prior, Finding Dory is on a whole other level. You can tell, too. It's like, they start this movie with this like shot where they establish a panning shot of like the place where Marilyn and, and Dory and Nemo are living. And you see all the like wildlife moving around and all the fish and stuff, and they're like, flex in time. The reflection of light, particles floating in the water, it all just seems very realistic. A note here though, Gar, to make the lighting more realistic, Pixar's Renderman, which is their rendering engine, was completely re-engineered its biggest change in 25 years. Oh, so, and unlike the last time they changed the technology, the film doesn't look bad. <laughs> I don't think, like, I don't think there's much in the movie I would have looked at and said, oh, geez, isn't this the best looking movie of all time? Like, I, I'm, I can't even think of a single time where my brain, like, oh, look how nice this looks. Like, there's times where there's, like, you know, in the, the water tank scene where they're, they're in the open water exhibit. And there is so many fish whizzing around that little tube there, which is quite impressive. But I'm still not like, you know, this is the, the prettiest movie I've ever seen. But it is a very good looking animated movie. I do think all the natural elements, such as water, rocks, and vegetation, look extremely realistic though yeah possibly due to the way the light interacts with them but and because like it's meant to look realistic it doesn't jar like the good dinosaur it's meant to be a realistic city environment so when it looks realistic it's fine and the fish they're obviously characterized and turned into people but they still look like fish well if you use the real character models the fish would have the eyes on the sides of their head and i don't think that would work as well be really creepy and they'd have more scales and i don't think anybody wants more scales in any movie no. The fictional Marine Life Institute, depicted extensively in the film, is based on the production team's trips to Monterey Bay Aquarium, the Marine Mammal Center, and and the Vancouver Aquarium. So they got their free trips here. I'm surprised they didn't go to like a, an aquarium in New Zealand. They're like, we got to go to this New Zealand aquarium, you know? So that's what we're basing this on. So we have to go to New Zealand. Yes, New sorry. Zealand. <laughs> yes. What about what, what this one down the road? Oh, no. No, we for some reason decided that because they have to travel around around the world again they have to go to the other side of the world which we established in the first movie is australia so they have to go somewhere near there which is new zealand that's not because it's on my dream vacation bucket list it's just art mm. i only have one more note on the animation here Gar. baby dory is adorable yeah very cute not sure how cute you can make fish but they did their best it's the big eyes and tiny body for me fish are hideous yeah, most Pixar animation models are just basically like slap some giant eyes on something. It's like, we'll make the fish and then we'll put some googly eyes on it. Job done. Iconic. <laughs> Moving along here to the story, Gar, the film's ending was revised after Pixar executives viewed Blackfish, a 2013 documentary film, which focuses on the dangers of keeping orca whales in captivity. Initially, some of the characters were to end up in a sea world-like marine park, but the revision gave them the option to leave. So we do see at the end of the film, both the whales escape the Institute. Also, Even though the, the goal was as a hammer into you during the course of the film, we're not keeping 
keeping them captive. We're just rehabilitating the sick ones and putting them back. Ones who won't survive, we do put them in an aquarium, but we treat them really nicely. Yeah, and even like the last line of the movie, well, not quite the last line, but the last line of that portion of the movie before they flash forward to them being back in Marilyn's house is the rehabilitate, release. And it's like, release. (laughs) So you're saying that there was a version of the film where it's like the the happy ending is them all living in the park together? Well, maybe not all of them, but some of them. Mm. As opposed to now, they're all free. All of them are free. They all fell out of that truck. All of those fish are free. I know we talked about it in the first film, Gary, but I wanted to come back to Ellen DeGeneres' performance Mm -hmm. as Dory. It's really good. It is. It's It's, like she never left. It's excellent. She's been cancelled, so sorry. (laughs) But she is really good in the movie. That performance has a sense of kinetic energy to it where she's always moving, but it's not not in an annoying way. It just imbues the character's sense of disorientation. And yeah, I think it especially of- works in the scene toward the end of the movie, where again she gets separated from Marilyn and Nemo, and she begins to forget what she was doing. And like, there's this, as you said, kinetic sense of panic to her, where it's like that quick, fast delivery, where she's like, "I was going to do this, and I was going to do this," and it's the delivery and the performance of those scenes are really, really, really good. She's yeah. very good in this role. Dory, who is played for laughs a lot, you know, she comes with a lot of emotional heft at the same time because Ellen does bring that to the character as well. Mm. I also think Ed O'Neill is great as Hank the Fugitive Octopus. He's like the opposite of Gil in the first film. He he doesn't want to go back to the ocean. Yeah, and then he becomes real cynical. Um, Real modern family cast in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh yes, uh, Ty Burrell is also <laughs> you, in it. You have Ty Burrell there too, so they're very much like, oh, TV actors. But both Ty Burrell and Ed O'Neill are, are good in this movie. I think, like, I honestly would rather... Nemo and Marilyn be more sidelined in this movie because I think they don't really have much to do otherwise. Yeah, they are there and I I know they tie the plot together and part of the realisation for Dory is that she wants to meet her family again but Marilyn and Nemo are also her family. Mm. So I do think they serve a purpose, but at the same time, all the stuff with them is a bit of a side attraction. Yeah, it's now something different while, you know, we get back to Dory and that's the thing you care about. And like this, maybe it's like this movie is 90 minutes long. It's like, whoa, it should have been 75 and they should have taken out the Nemo stuff. It's like, all right, that's probably not going to happen. But I I wish they would have found something more meaningful for Nemo and Marilyn to actually do in the movie. As I said, like like Marilyn's big thing is is the thing in the, the first movie, except with Dory. Like the thing is that he has to trust Nemo to be able to act by himself and, and act responsibly for himself and that's the thing he learns when he lets Nemo go into the net and pull everyone down and save all the fish which is that that's the lesson in this one and then the lesson the lesson in the sequel is he has to trust Dory and, and to trust Dory's way of thinking which is even the thing that was in the first movie as well where it's like he keeps on pushing back on Dory's ideas until he realizes that Dory's ideas would in fact you know save the day which is again the lesson here so it's just they didn't really find anything new to do with them which I think is the problem to your point Gary we do get answers to questions about Dory that that arguably you never had yeah we never asked like how she can speak whale or her swimming song I do think these elements are handled very sweetly and even cleverly at times though yeah they work in what this movie is but it's also it's like I didn't come out of that movie being like how can Dory speak whale I didn't need to know the answer to that question and I think the way it's incorporated in this movie is quite nice but it is that classic sequel thing it's like we're going to answer the inessential questions you've never had I always go back to like the dice on the Millennium Falcon it's like we're going to answer how Han Solo got those dice or where his name came from it's like i just assumed he was called han solo frankly so if you're talking about changing the dynamic and presenting something new what would you have done with nemo and marilyn in relation to dory kick him out like completely remove them or no give him like the crush arc in this movie you know where crush shows up just so you're like oh yeah crush from the first movie (laughs) like i think it's fine that dory can be in this movie go on her own adventure and then bring her family back to to marilyn that's a good point you can put nemo and marilyn at the start and the end 
because it is finding Dory and I think maybe the only reason to include him was marketing reasons yeah and, and like cynically you can argue the only reason to include Crush was who voices Crush can Andrew Stanton get himself in the movie for a little bit but uh, he was a character people liked from the first one so I suppose but I, I think it would work better well not better but like it, you wouldn't have had to retreat the Marlin Grant or just come up with some other thing for him to do or just have him be there he doesn't need to be like some kind of antagonist to Dory in the movie he can just help and support and get separated you don't need to do the oh Dory you don't nothing oh you getting lost gets us uh, in trouble every time and then he gets very sad and annoyed though I did like the exchange he had with Nemo after that where it's like he didn't have to bring up the bad part again yeah not to mention it also affects Nemo because he has those historic issues of trust with Nemo as well mm. And that brings up a bit of trauma for Nemo. Yeah, but I think the the Dory and octopus named Hank, I think that's like the, the core of the movie. Yeah, speaking of which, the sequence where Dory and Hank navigate the park via stroller is very good. Yeah, and, and I think all that like physical, uh, and it's not quite comedy, it's more like action of these characters, these fish navigating the, the real human world, which uh, like escalates and culminates in an octopus driving a truck is, is all very good stuff. It is very good, but th- there's also... As you said, a lot of need for fish to travel outside of water in this movie. Yeah. And they always seem to conveniently land in water at the end of their daring maneuvers or there's water around to put them in. I'm fine with that. Ken, believe it or not, I'm pretty sure if you put an octopus in a truck, wouldn't be able to drive it. What? I know. I don't think it would be able to work it out. Even with all those arms? Even with seven arms, not eight arms. He lost one. But like, there's people who will have a problem with that. It's like, octopus can't drive a truck. It's very unbelievable. It's like, this movie about talking fish is unbelievable to you. Like, I don't care that they conveniently land in water every time. It's just, who cares? It's an animated movie. Let them do their stretches of logic. Again, fish don't really talk, Ken. No, I didn't care either, but I did think it was funny how it just, like, it just happens every time. Everything works out for them because they're the lead character and that's fine but they're the blessed ones I did have a note here as well Gar. the touch pool sequence is exactly like the caterpillar room in Toy Story 3 one of my notes Ken my only note from the movie kid zone sequence is right out of Toy Story 3 nice we're on the same page here <laughs> so yeah it's, it's a sequence where they're in the kid zone and then they're in the, as you said the touch pool and all the fish are like hands hands and they're trying to hide and it's literally the scene in the daycare where all the kids come in and trash the toys overall though I do think there's a nice moral about acceptance in this film Dory's parents accept her for who she is and others only see her for her limitations until they scratch below the surface yeah until they become friends with her and she stops being annoying to them yeah and they understand that she's not being annoying because like she's in distress yes all the time literally all the time and even when she's not in distress it's only because she's forgotten she's in distress which is honestly a worse kind of distress you mentioned it as well Garrett. the sequence where dory finds her family is also so well done you know uh, if you remember a note we mentioned in the first finding nemo is they probably didn't make as much as they could have out of the actual reunion between nemo and marilyn yes you know they go straight into the action sequence whereas here they're like well screw it we're making the most out of this yeah that was a whole i think about 10 minutes of the movie i think yeah and they got back together and they paused and i actually i honestly really loved the touch that like they for the entire time that she has been missing have set up a central hub and have been building passive shells yeah i love that the visual of it is really adorable but just the idea of it because it links to like what they taught her when she was young before she got lost because they understand the one thing she can do to find home is follow the shells it's the one thing they've really trained like she'll understand and she does she finds the shells and she finds home but like it's also utterly heartbreaking to think about because we don't really know how long dory has been gone 
She was a child when she was gone and she's an adult now. I don't know what the lifespan of that particular fish is. Could be years, could be months, who knows. But you have the feeling, actually, no, we know it's at least a year because this is set one year after Finding Nemo. Yeah. So it is at least a year, probably much longer than that. I'd say two or three because she's an adult when she meets Marlin. I don't know what, I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea what age these fish can be, so who knows. Yeah. But for as long as she has been gone, which we know is at least a year, more than likely much longer, they have every day been gathering shells and building paths of shells and like there's like a tragic short in that like the, the these separated parents have just been trying to find their daughter like a coping mechanism of you know they don't know whether that's going to work they say when she comes back that they knew it would work but i think it was just yeah she could with... just, dory could have just been eaten by the same barracuda that ate nemo's family it's just them dealing with grief but the visuals the score around that section all amazing even the way they come back holding piles of shells you know from the you know they went to get the a new stock of shells to extend their pathways that Dory might find. It's it's all yeah, it's very touching. So, which means if they've been doing this for years, those like shell paths must spread for miles. Well, they have to because she could be anywhere. Girl. Yeah. So they just have to keep building out and keep building out. Gary, you touched on it there. There's something ridiculous and wonderful about an octopus stealing and driving a truck. Mm-hmm. I do think it's a really thrilling climax. Yeah, that whole thing where they get out of the water and there's the, the echo location, which is a payoff for that character. And yeah, they're all it's all just nice small payoffs for all of those characters. The two whales and like again, Marlin and Nemo are kind of useless in this situation again. They're <laughs> along for the ride. Which even like it does set up the kind of annoying contrivance of like they get into the bucket for the bird whose name I can't remember. Oh god, no. Again, short-term memory loss. Just Sally? It's not Sally. Something like that, though. Yeah, for the the bird. And and Dory is left behind. It's like one of those small animated film contrivances. I'm like, But, for the most part... Yeah, that, that that ending sequence is real fun. And he said, like, I'm going to ask you to do something real stupid. And he drives the truck into the ocean. <laughs> yeah. Well, what a wonderful world to place. And I quite like the fact that, like, there were two people who were driving this truck. And they were hijacked. And they know they were hijacked by an octopus. <laughs> and then they're going to have to try and explain that. The, the octopus hijacked. Again, that would be a really good short. Them coming into, like, the office. And it's like, we swear the octopus hijacked the truck and drove it into the ocean. Yeah, sure, Becky. Sure. <laughs> we mentioned the score there, Gareth. Thomas Newman returns to score the sequel, having worked on the first one. I really like Thomas Newman's work in these films. The score has a relaxing quality, which I find very mellow, but it really captures the mystery and diversity of the ocean. His score also has a knack of augmenting the sweeter and more emotional moments. Yeah, uh, again, Thomas Newman, top top-notch composer, famous for working on the... What's the name of that director who did the Bond movies? Sam Mendes? Sam Mendes movies, yes. So he did Spectre and Skyfall in 1947. He also did WALL-E, which I think is objectively the best Pixar score. And... Yeah, very good composer. Makes good music. Not a very song-heavy movie, but we do get a Louis Armstrong version of What a Wonderful World, which plays during the scene where the fish are released into the ocean as the truck, Dory, and Hank are driving crashes into the water. That was very funny because it goes in slow-mo and they're all like... <laughs> and the ridiculousness of that versus that very slow and gentle song is just kind of funny. Yeah, and we end with a new version of Unforgettable as well. Which, to be fair, I didn't really like. I found it a bit too haunting and creepy for a kid's movie. Oh, to, to, and it's the very last thing you hear in the movie, so you hated it? Yeah, so... As they're looking over the, the drop and they're like, oh, it's Unforgettable, and then Unforgettable plays the lead into the credits. No thanks, yeah. Is Nicole doing one of them? She is. Oh, which is She's she She's back. 
Okay, it's a surprise. Oh, sorry. Ken doesn't like me revealing the surprises beforehand. It's like, first of all, you're revealing next week's film. I oh, think they oh. know which film comes... They can find out, Ken, which film comes after Finding Dory. The legacy of Finding Dory is that it set numerous box office records, including the biggest opening for an animated film in North America and the highest grossing animated film in North America. It's the fourth Pixar film to become a multi-film franchise and only the second to gross over a billion dollars at the box office. Also only the second to make a good sequel. So well done. <laughs> Discussions for a third installment began shortly after the release of Finding Dory, with Andrew Stanton stating that he was not against the idea, knowing the Toy Story franchise's ability to build and expand on the world by introducing new characters. No further details or talk of the sequel have arisen to date. I don't know. Again, they were somewhat stretching the material for Finding Dory, as we mentioned with some of the characters who had to retreat their narrative arcs of the first one. So, will there be room for a third? Gut says no, but who knows. You can just make another film about fish. I get, like, Dory and Nemo are popular characters, so odds are they want to put the popular characters in the movie again. But still. What could you possibly do for a third one? Find Marilyn a wife? Sure. Marilyn's wife isn't actually dead. She's been missing all along. The Barracuda only got the children. (laughs) Well, girl, you know. Or it's a revenge story, Ken. Nemo grows up. He's a grizzled, angry fish trying to get revenge on the Barracuda who murdered his mother and, like, hundreds of (laughs) siblings. So there you go. It's a gritty movie. And he crosses the ocean again to find the Barracuda only to find out that he's dead and then has to come to terms with his grief. Mm. Good, yeah. Girl, we didn't just hire us. We can write these sequels. Yeah, and and maybe the Barracuda came back, killed Marlin. (laughs) I don't know. A revenge story. Then Dory forgets that her friends are dead and it's all very tragic. Too far, (laughs) Overall, as much as I am sceptical of Pixar sequels, I did really enjoy returning to this world and and spending time with these characters again. This sequel packed enough emotional heft for me and sensitivity to the subject matter to justify its place in the Pixar canon. I can't say it stacks up fully compared to Finding Nemo, but it's an enjoyable, often thought-provoking sequel that left me with an unexpected feeling of satisfaction at the end. I was actually just looking up to see what it lost to for Best Animated Feature wasn't even nominated for Best Animated Feature. That's gotta hurt. There's only a couple since they brought in the category and Pixar was releasing films, and I think Cars 2 was one of them as well. You know what must hurt even more? Two of the films nominated were Disney films. So Zootopia 1 and Moana. Kubo and the Two Strings. Great movie. Great movie. We went to see that together as well, Yeah, My Life as a Zucchini and The Red Turtle, which I have not heard of either, were the films nominated that year. So yeah, not even to be nominated for Best Animated Feature. I'm still resistant to the idea of making sequels for the sake of sequels, but Pixar made the best of it, of this case in my opinion, to produce something of value in its own right. And I think that's what you touched on earlier, Gar. Yeah, as I said, it won't be on your top 10 list, or maybe if it is, it's in the like 8 to 10 slots at best. It won't be one of your favourite anime movies of all time i think even if you love the first one this probably you'll, you'll come out of this with the same feeling of like surprisingly enjoyable but still inessential which is i think a good way to describe it it is surprisingly enjoyable but still inessential and listen as i said goes down easy you'll have a nice evening if you decide to throw on finding tory yeah because i remember sitting here at the end just for a couple of minutes and they always have those nice closing sequences now with the music and i'm like yeah i feel good i feel Happy having watched that film. Yeah, as opposed to Monsters University where we're like, listen, you know, it's inessential, but it's okay. 
and Cars 2, which were like, this is this film is diabolical. Act of anger, finishing mm. that film. So check it out. All right, Magic Marlins, it's nearly time for us to migrate for another week. After an absence that was all too long, resident Magic by Design singer Nicole is back this week with a tune from Finding Dory. But before that musical treat, we're going to hold you ransom for a few more minutes first. Yeah, Ken's going to give you the outro and I'm maybe going to chime in once or twice. New episodes of Magic by Design land every Monday where all magical podcasts are downloaded. Stop by our website at magicbydesign.buzzsprout.com to find a full list of podcast platforms. We are everywhere in the podcasting infrastructure. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, you name it, we're on it. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Join our school on social media by following us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash magic by design pod, on Twitter at magic design pod, and on Insta at magic by design pod. If you enjoy the show, be sure to let all your friends know by leaving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. If you give us a positive review, you will receive a family pass to the Marine Life Institute, the jewel of Morrow Bay. Yeah, you can hear Sigourney Weaver. Yes. She'll say hello to you like she did at the start of our podcast. Which is a bizarre but fun running gag in this film. Yeah, it's a nice little bit. It's like, how do you think they pitched that to her? Or maybe like they floated around multiple celebrities until Sigourney Weaver said yes. She exists in the Pixar universe, Karen. <laughs> yeah, she's a canon character in Pixar world. Next week, we'll be taking a look at... I'm sorry, Karen. It's Cars 3. I haven't seen it. I will not prejudge Cars 3. It might be the Cars sequel I was actually asking for. And I might finally explain how this world works. <laughs> So be sure to keep an eye out for that in your podcasting feeds, but until then, stay safe and remember, when something is too hard, there's always another way. And if all else fails, just ask yourself, what would Dory do? She'd just keep swimming. Yeah, we used that the last time though, so I couldn't do it again. Oh, good. Sorry. Now then, the wait is over. Nicole is here with her unique take on Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World, featured in the thrilling climax of Finding Dory. Thanks for listening and see you next week. tree